Hello and welcome back to Viva Forever. I'm here with Helen from York Disability Rights Forum and Amber from All Should Eat. We're sitting down to talk about their upcoming talk, Disabled People and Food Insecurity. Hi Bo. So firstly, could you tell me about your upcoming talk? What will you be discussing? Where will it be held and how can people attend? Okay, yeah. I mean, I'll start with where um having it at the Boland, I think we say it, Boland Auditorium in the Berwick Hall building this Friday, the 21st at 6.30. And you can get your tickets on Eventbrite and they are on All Should Eat's link tree, which is in our Instagram bio. Our Instagram is at UOY underscore All Should Eat. Um, and Helen can probably talk a little bit more about what she's going to be discussing. Yeah, absolutely. So... As is sort of within the name of the talk itself, the primary focus is on the link between being disabled, living in poverty and food insecurity. Um, but it will also touch a little bit more on disability more generally. That's something that is always, I feel quite important whenever I'm doing something like this to make sure that everyone in the room gets a little bit of background knowledge about kind of being disabled and challenge some of the assumptions that a lot of people have um so it'll sort of touch on that as well yeah it might be worth um saying helen she actually delivers training to various charities and i hope my she doesn't mind me saying but has been involved in creating a master's recently so she's wow. uh yeah it's great and um she she delivers a lot of this sort of training and kind of a lot when that was um what i had experienced through knowing her i'd experienced the training that she delivers and when we were talking about doing this event, we thought it would be really important if she starts off with what she knows based off her expertise and experience, and then we can kind of link that to food poverty. Mm -hmm. The next question sort of ties in from that. Um, how can students help tackle food insecurity, especially for disabled people in the community? I'm um, going to let Amber take the lead on that one, I think. Um, is, this, is this in York, at the University of York? Yeah, um, so student, a student who was looking to um, either get involved with um, the forum or um, your society or okay. if just generally they wanted to do their bit to help out. Well, if this was a student at York, we um, have donation points that are available on our social media, but there are nine, I believe, all over Campus West and Campus East. And... We encourage people to donate, particularly when students are moving out and they often have stuff in their cupboards that would otherwise go in the bin, um, drop back to us. They're in most colleges and outside the library and also message us. We've had people message us before if they've had like, um, um, <laughs> we had a message once, someone had like an excessive amount of coffee um, for like their office and we took it and distributed it um, not only to go to the families, but to the places where those families go. So Tangle Local, which is at Tangle Community Centre, we gave them the coffee because they have like breakfast mornings and stuff that people come and attend and it's like a sense of community there as well. So that was really useful for that. Um, and we also, this term, and well, this, this year, we've been running stalls outside Nisa West collecting donations. And that's been really great in getting a significant amount of donations in one day and we've been alternating the local food initiatives that we um like donate those to and that's great because you can 
actually speak to people in person and encourage a variation of food for people with dietary requirements. So encouraging vegan options and gluten-free options. Um, and I guess with tackling food insecurity, especially for disabled people in the community, I know um, personally being in York and having friends that are disabled students, it's like it can be quite difficult living on your own at university, especially when maybe the city you're living in isn't very accessible. So I would say, I mean, Helen could probably talk a bit more about this, but offering your assistance when you can, even if that means cooking a meal or doing your friend's shopping or helping them clear up the kitchen, if you're able to, um, like it, they might be living in food poverty, but that might not necessarily be financial. Yeah, that's a really, really important point, I think. Um, because a lot of the ways, and also a lot of the ways that you cut down on your food costs is by being able to prepare your own food. Um, so absolutely, I think in general for students, um, I mean, I know that I did this many years ago when I was a student, you know, teaming up with your housemates if you're going to get a food delivery, because that way you're splitting the cost of the actual delivery fee. Mm -hmm. If you are going to... Aldi and you're getting in a taxi take more people you know maximize that in those ways and also like Amber says if you have somebody who can cook in a you know do your own cooking if you've got a housemate who maybe can't you know a lot of the time it makes no difference whether you're cooking for one or two in terms of the time and the effort yeah. and there's always different ways that relationships exchange skills so it, it's not like you would it's quite hard to explain to a lot of people because they see that then as like this kind of caring role but it's like it's inter interdependence and i think there's such a big need to remind people we are interdependent as humans none of us can live entirely by ourselves we cannot grow everything whilst also cooking everything and building our house and doing all of that so yeah just sort of encouraging community and building that idea of interdependence and sharing skills and I think that's really important. Yeah, I really like the idea of um, cooking for other people just because it's a lot easier to actually cook for more people than it is just one person. Like you're cooking for one person, you're having to really think about like scaling back and you're reducing yeah. waste by sharing a meal as well and it's also quite a nice social thing to do. It saves money. It will put down on electricity costs and things like that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that that's very productive. Or even just if you're somebody who's cooking a meal for yourself and you've got a friend that maybe is less able to cook, book another one that can be put in the freezer. Yeah. Mm. There are a lot of little ways that you can really support people in your life. Uh, those are really, really good responses. Thank you. Um, and more generally, the event, what is your goal of hosting it? What are you aiming to achieve? Well, for us, um, mostly actually, I have to say through knowing Helen, um, accessibility has been personally a big thing that I have focused on. So when I took over the project, it's been a really big thing that the entire committee has focused on and everyone's um, really um, risen. It shouldn't be a challenge, but risen to that challenge because sometimes writing all of the alt text that we've been doing on our social media, it, it does make the process longer, but it's something that we really want to be able to do because our whole thing is that all should eat. So we want to 
include everyone in that as including our social media so it's been a really big thing for us we've been offering um alt text and we've also adjusted the colors of our logo that was something we did really early on and then when we ran the nisa stalls as i i mentioned we were encouraging people to purchase particular things so we we wanted to have a speaker event because part of what we want to do was is um to help tackle local food poverty and insecurity but also to educate about that and you know we can give as much of our time but i don't personally think that i'm like qualified able to knowledgeable enough to say that i can educate other people so we really wanted to get external speakers in um so it made a lot of sense to work with helen knowing that helen delivers this sort of training quite a lot um however we were let down slightly because we wanted um funding to pay helen for her time and her expertise but um we applied twice and that wasn't um approved either time so it's very lucky actually that i know helen personally because and and it's a difficult one morally because we don't agree with having disabled people in and not paying them for their time it's setting this kind of precedent that they should come and educate us how we can include them we didn't really like that but hopefully following this event which i think is going to be really successful people will recognize how important it is to have external speakers particularly disabled external speakers in the project that we are doing and hopefully we can approach that differently next time um so it's not really a goal of hosting the event but it's um something that's got in the way of what we wanted to do a little bit and i think it is worth talking about absolutely um as amber said you know there's an expectation that disabled people should give their time energy knowledge for free which comes up again and again and you know i'm happy to come along and uh, do this but i know amber so it is slightly different um in terms of my kind of reason for being involved in the event um is that I hope it will have a bit of a ripple effect. So people, when they're talking either about disability or about food um, insecurity or about poverty, you know, whichever aspect they take away most strongly, that conversations will happen outside the talk. It will remind people that there's different ways of experiencing food insecurity. A lot of the time people go straight to financial and as we've touched on already, there's other things that kind of can come alongside that to mean that you are living in a situation where you cannot secure your meals. Um, and the goal behind almost everything I do in terms of public speaking is to be a living reminder that disabled people are people and we can contribute which is part of why again you know it would have been great to set a precedent of paying for speakers but you know we we are capable of adding to the world we have our own set of skills and to just challenge the idea that disabled people should be kind of almost kept away and not seen and not heard. There's something that I think, um, Helen, if you don't mind kind of going over, I know it's something you're going to talk about um, on Friday, but it's a, it was a really big thing for me actually thinking about how important accessibility is in the food that 
we are donating. We're seeing a lot recently about um, like excessive use of plastic. And um, there was a post um, about an orange. If you wanted to maybe talk about that, I think that yeah. kind of um, it, like explains why this event is so important and how the two really do um, link. Yeah, absolutely. So probably a few years ago now, there was a post on Twitter that went viral. It was a picture of a plastic pot and in it there was a ready peeled orange. And it came, the tweet that had the image said something along the lines of, if only they came with their own packaging. And there was a lot of fallout from that about how we're wasting packaging, how lazy people are, um, lots of different kind of reactions, but they were all very negative and very much focused on, you know, why have we done this? This is absolutely stupid and pointless. As a disabled person, my impairment means I could not peel an orange. If I tried, it would just go horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> it would not be edible, I don't think. Um, so whilst, yes, we do need to reduce plastic, there are times and places where that can give a disabled person independence in a situation where they wouldn't have it otherwise. And also the amount of plastics that we as consumers actually produce is trivial compared to what, um, industry and big companies like such as Coca-Cola actually, you know, use. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it's interesting thinking about in terms of like, there's a lot of guilt on the consumer for, you know, this plastic packaging, but it's part of a wider issue. And also like, it's also necessary. I know a lot of kosher food is, is double wrapped for, you know, religious reasons, you know, um, and it's sort of similar to the whole accessibility thing. There's time and places where it's so necessary and we can't just sort of say, no, like plastic's terrible. We shouldn't have these. Um, yeah, this packaging. Yeah, it's a really interesting issue. And we had a similar thing with the plastic um, straw ban. I, because I have care support during the day, I can use reusable straws. If I didn't have that support, I wouldn't be able to wash them clean um, properly. So I would have to use disposable plastic straws because. You can't realistically drink all of your drinks with paper straws because they don't last long enough. Mm. And I'd get through a ridiculous amount of paper instead. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of ways that that eco save the environment kind of way of thinking, which I am all for. Absolutely. You know, don't get me wrong there. But there's a lot of ways that that clashes with the needs of disabled people. Which is slightly off topic, actually, but it does come into food quite a lot. Yeah, no, it's also something that I think you just wouldn't really think of unless, you know, you were aware of these issues. I think that's a really interesting point. It's just like scapegoating, though, isn't it? It's like pointing to the disabled community and saying that, like, this tiny bit of plastic that you're using is, like, a really bad thing in the same way that, I think it'll be really interesting in the talk for Helen to talk about why there are so many disabled people living in poverty because you do get the um, the 
attitude that oh like you're getting this support and that support and you're doing it for xyz reasons and i think that will be a really interesting thing to talk about in the talk as well and i hope that it changes the attitude of the people that attend um not that i but even if it's not even like an intentional thing but you do get um like an unconscious bias about these sort of things so it's worth kind of explicitly unpacking them all yeah absolutely and sort of the last 10 years or so um the government have been very intentionally uh painting um anybody on benefits not just disabled people but in particular disabled people who receive benefits as sort of faking as scrounging as lazy and that has helped to me make sure that the benefits payments are not necessarily enough to live on um this idea that everybody's sort of making up um, a disability yeah i think the key thing is just come along and there's going to be space for questions as well so it's relevant to everyone we're living in a, a cost of living crisis and it's so important that we know how to support everybody in the community and also being disabled is like the the minority that you can sort of wake up one day and find yourself in yeah. everyone has the potential to become um to develop an impairment you know the nature of being human so helen um firstly could you tell us about your um work as a disability rights campaigner and activist and what you get up to in this role yes so I think for a bit of context, about three years ago, um, York Disability Rights Forum was formed and following that, I took on a variety of different roles, but um, my main role is as chair of the forum. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I do things like I manage our emails, um, our social media, I we send a monthly newsletter. Um, and. It's very important to me that I keep track of what our various subgroups are working on. So we've got one that's looking at uh, physical accessibility in York, one that looks at hate crime, and another just formed that's looking at... Um, there's been some really big changes in how ADHD and autism are assessed that's going to have a massive negative impact. Um, so that group has just sort of come together to do what we can about that um another key part of what i do and that i really enjoy is representing our members views and advocating for disabled people um at a range of different meetings so some with the council some that are linked to the health service and various others um and i also interact with our members which is my favorite part of what i get up to and I spend time expanding and developing what York Disability Rights Forum does. Um, for example, the training that Amber mentioned earlier, coming up to doing this talk. And it's not especially relevant to today, but I want to throw it in anyway. <laughs> Last summer, along with Portal Bookshop, I helped run and hold York's first ever Quiet Pride event, which was separate to York Pride. And it was very much a space where queer, disabled people could come, could feel fully accepted, and we made it as accessible as absolutely possible. And we'll be doing that again this summer. So if anyone's interested, kind of 
ticket and sign up to the York Disability Rights Forum newsletter. And when we know more, we'll tell you more. That sounds so good. Um, because I went to my first Pride last year, and it it is so loud and overwhelming and busy, and there's so many people, isn't there? Like it it can't be a very accessible space at all, really. No, there's a lot of ways in which it is. And I mean, in New York, they use the race course and as much as they try, it's just not necessarily a very accessible venue for things like wheelchair users. Um, anybody who's got any kind of sensory um, issues or impairments, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great event. It's just not for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how do you decide to become an activist for disability rights? Was there something that sort of drew you to it or um, you felt you really needed to advocate for a specific thing? Um, I have pretty much always been a campaigner or activist in some form. Um, in primary school, I was petitioning the head teacher that pupils who had suitable footwear could be allowed out in the snow. Um, there was a few of the moments in primary school like that. Um, when I got to the University of York as a student, I was heavily involved in People and Planet, which is a camp student campaigning um, society. And then about three years ago, I was approached because there was a little, little bit of money that was being held by the York Human Rights City um, to see if there was... To, to see if it was feasible for there to be something like what turned into York Disability Rights Forum. And I, along the way, fell into the role of chair. And that's where we are today. So it's kind of very much ingrained in me, is sort of the idea of being kind of activist. Um, I very strongly believe in fairness um in the power of disabled people to advocate for ourselves and I became a wheelchair user as an adult and suddenly was left finding a load of information having to you know work out benefit systems having to work out how on earth you actually get a wheelchair um and all of that and what I really want to come out of York Disability Rights Forum is for people to see disabled people being empowered to do amazing things, primarily so that anyone else who is in that situation knows they have a community, they can approach, they can ask advice, we can share information between us and speaking up for rights inevitably has to be part of that work. That's a really good answer, yeah. Um... It's also just, it's it's so nice to hear how um, the forum's sort of grown. It's come from um, an idea to a, um, a really thriving community. It's really nice to hear. Thank you. Um, so what's been your biggest challenge as a campaigner and activist? Specifically within everything with York Disability Rights Forum, on a personal level, I am managing an, um, a long-term health condition and that does bring fatigue and pain, which can interfere with things. Um, but forum-wise, the biggest challenge that I faced personally, but also we did as a community, um, was in began in 2020 when 
York Council began a process of excluding blue badge holders from the city centre. And for the first 18 months of that, I was a key voice in the objection. And I was hearing from our community devastating stories of people who turned up to go to a, you know, someone's birthday party only to then find out they couldn't get into the city centre with their blue badge. Um, so I was hearing all of these awful emotional pleas from our community and I was going into meetings with the council who are the ones who could change it or the councillors, sorry, were the ones who can change it. And it was like I was talking to a brick wall and I was repeating myself over and over again and trying to remain kind of calm and professional whilst also being filled with this outrage of how I was being treated and how my community was being treated. Um, and the hardest bit of all of that was going to the final decision meeting to make the ban permanent, sitting in a room with councillors um, and speaking on behalf of all of our members, uh, bursting into tears by this point because it was getting really emotional and having uh, local ward councillors look me in the eye as I cried while I read the speech and they still unanimously voted to make the ban permanent. So I think both at a very personal level, obviously that was a massive challenge, but also as a campaigner and an activist, I was sat there providing really logical, articulated, even though there was some tears, um, articulated thoughts and objections and to not be treated like I was worth engaging fully with for that. So, you know, it was like, it was like talking to a brick wall, like my ideas, my thoughts, my opinions, my facts were not being treated with the respect of engagement with that. It was a done decision as far as I feel. Um, so after that, I pulled back from that particular part of campaigning. And for anyone who is interested in finding out more, um, a coalition that goes under the banner of Reverse the Ban has been formed since. And we do have local elections coming up in May here in York. And we have asked the various political parties for a statement on the Blue Badge Ban in the city centre. Um, and you can find them on our website if you are interested. Brilliant, thank you. How does being a student affect local support for the cost of living and what needs to change so that they can be fully supported? So if I start on this one and then Amber, feel free to um, chip in. But students tend to have less access or limited access to benefits, with the main exception being if you've got children or you are disabled. So that's already a hindrance potentially you know if you're relying on benefits you're not getting as much or not getting the same access but if you are disabled have children and or have children and are at uni do check because you might be able to get something um depending on your university there might be support funds um for emergencies for example and i do know that um at the university of york uh, student support and advice can potentially help get you access to food vouchers 
which you can use in the York Food Bank. Um, and the colleges, I believe, do sometimes hold free food events. Um, in, in terms of improving that access, increasing financial support in general for disabled students, of students in general as well. Um, and one thing when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about where the food banks are and how I would have got to them from where I was living as a student. And I would have really struggled because of how they're spread out across the city, which is amazing for the community. You know, if you, you want to be able to go to the food bank in your community, which is fantastic. So I was sort of thinking about that and I was thinking, well, as far as I'm aware, there is not a food bank collection point at the university. And it feels like that potentially is a bit of a gap. Um, I'll pop in here. Um, everything Helen said, completely agree with and, and also would have said. Um, adding on that, I think that it's worth mentioning the food banks that don't rely on food vouchers. Um, there are pros and cons to them, but... I know Tang Hall, big local, you just um, go there and if you are in need, you get given what you need to the best that, that they can. And I, I know um, slightly, slightly off topic, but personally, um, I have, um, oh, how do I say this? I, I, I know people that rely on food banks and it's not financial at all. It's, um, it's much more to do with their mental health and not feeling like they have the, um, ability to um, regularly plan and get the right sort of food. So I think there's, um, don't just rely on that. If you find a local food initiative and often the smaller ones are the most willing to cater to your individual needs. Um, with regards to getting there, I know with All Should Eat, we have requested money for members to go to the local food banks so we have a certain amount of money that we have got for our members to go and I mean quote unquote visit but we personally would be more than happy to use that to support students who are members who wish to also use it um I'm not sure we, that's never really happened but if somebody came to us that's how I would go about it and definitely if you're a student at York come to us because we know the local food initiatives and we can at least help offer advice um i would also say there is a gap in a food bank on campus but there is york scoop i don't know a huge amount about what they do but they offer they sell food um they also give away food that is slightly out of date but still perfectly fine to eat this is the, this is all what I what I think. I'm not 100 percent clued up on this. So if you know more, um, please do say. And they, I think they sell them pretty much at wholesale prices. Um, we have done a weekly spotlight on them on our Instagram. That's worth having a look at if you don't feel like you can get to a supermarket and that's why you're struggling, or um, if you're just looking for something that might be a little bit cheaper. They always seem very willing to help it's run by by student volunteers um so that's if if you're based in york is something to to think about
these questions are for all she do. Um, how can people get involved with your project? So our membership on Yisoo, um is absolutely free. So if you sign up on there, you can get our emails. You don't just have to be a student to get involved with the project. We've opened up our committee meetings uh, recently. So fortnightly, we've welcomed in members who maybe want to get a bit more involved behind the scenes, um, which I I may mention in a little bit. But there have been times where we've been contacted by people on social media who might be local but are interested in offering their um, time and expertise and services in a particular way and we would welcome them to those sort of things. Just on that note really quickly I think that's something just to reiterate about this talk that's happening um, this week it's anybody can come along so long as they've booked. Yeah yeah don't have to be a student or anything um, yeah that was good to mention um, uh, yeah so sign up there and then you got our emails on our emails we do send a link to a whatsapp chat which some of our stuff um, gets sent on as well. We make individual WhatsApp chats for each fortnightly collection because that's um, something that we do do very regularly and have done since we started. We have these fortnightly collections where the members all get together and we go between the donation points around both campuses. And then we typically take those to Tanghall Big Local, which is based at Tanghall Community Centre. Also, I would say keep update up to date with our social media. A lot of our stuff goes on there. Um, so definitely, definitely do that and always drop us a message. Um, yeah, we've been doing these open meetings um, and that's actually, it's been really good in ensuring that the project does grow because we had, because the project is quite new. I mean, we, I joined in, um, I joined last year, maybe even the year before. And uh, well, I've been a part of Al Shadit since they expanded their committee. So kind of since they started trying to make the project work amid the pandemic, because it was kind of the concept was come up with, they came up with it, I want to say 2020. Um, so they didn't really have time to actually actually do it and when I joined that was when we started doing that and I I was first volunteer officer so I've been a big part of figuring out how we get members involved and even now we don't have like a set um plan for each year that each committee does we're very open to if it educates people about food poverty and if it helps tackle it we'll do it and that's kind of been the case with everything that we've done um so even if you have absolutely nothing to do with the university, if you have an idea, a suggestion, something that you think would make sense for us to be doing, definitely get in touch in that way. Same if you're a member and, or if you're not a member but a student but involved in a different group. And for example, I'm, in, I'm involved in dance and we've done a lot of collaborations through that. So we've held stalls at competitions. I, I did a short speech on a competition. So anything like that those are those are the two main things that we do and um, we we work to educate and we work to tackle it i mean that's that's pretty much it um just to keep keep um on top of our social media and sign up to our emails if you are a student and become a member it's free um but also get in touch because we're a volunteering project it's not a set in stone society and we want to um do all we can and yeah what I was saying about these open meetings 
is that we've had members come along because it um we were quite new and our because we were coming up with these ideas in our meetings a lot of what we were doing was kind of just within the committee so we had like 80 something members signed up but the only thing that the members were really involved in was the collection so that's why we've done we've opened up these committee meetings and actually it's been great because we've had members we have a, one of our members is really involved with like Anne Lister um like the environmental um he's like the environmental officer for Anne Lister or something but he's been really great in ensuring that the box in Anne Lister stays in Anne Lister because that was the struggle for a while that kept disappearing um so he's been great for that and then we've also had people come to these meetings who have like for example designed the poster that we've used for this event and a lot of the people that have been coming to these meetings have then decided to run for the committee um so it's, it's been a really a really massive part and i hope it's something that we continue to do but just yeah drop us a message we're very open to everything and we're still very new brilliant thank you um so aside from this upcoming talk are there any other plans for events that people can get involved with this term um so we're handing over to the new committee literally tomorrow i mean we're we're recording this right now on the 19th of april we're handing over on thursday the 20th um so i can't really say what they're going to do it'll be really difficult for me to leave the project um it's it's been a massive deal to me since i've been involved for quite a while now and actually um such a massive part of my uni experience because i'm seeking postgraduate employment in similar fields doing similar work um so i'll be very sad to go but i have absolute faith in the next committee and i think that this really is the beginning for what Wolf Should Eat is doing. Um, so I'm not sure what they've got planned. Um, I'm sure it'll be great. Hopefully the stuff that we have done will continue to happen. I hope that they continue to have external speakers come in. I think this event's going to be really great. And it's great that it'll be kind of the last event I'm doing with the project. Um, I hope the NISA stalls continue. And it's actually been great with the NISA stalls because you you're interacting with people and um, encouraging donations. But I always start those conversations. I'm like, oh, have you heard of All Should Eat? And I've kind of witnessed the transition of everyone's like, sorry, sorry, what? And now most people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, which is great. And I hope that that just continues to happen. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's so nice knowing that, like, you've left sort of a legacy and we're hoping that people can continue to... Um, you know, work on the things that you started to put in place. Yeah, thank you. It's not the sort of thing that, and Helen probably feels the same with the forum, it's not the sort of project and the people that tend to kind of gravitate to this sort of stuff. Um, we're not very good at actually looking at we, what we have achieved. Um, you're always working to help, like, better the community. You never really stop and think about, oh, I've actually done done a very good job with this, but... Mm -hmm. I see it with the committee. I see it with everyone in the committee who has devoted like an incredible amount of time and running those stalls in particular, you do get people that walk past and ignore you. You very you do see the best and the worst of people, but um we really have seen the best and I think everyone like everyone that we've met at these stalls that talks to us wants to know more about it. They've gone into Nisa and it's not even about donating a lot of stuff we know that we're students we know that like we don't presume that everybody can but everybody has just been incredibly generous with their time and with things like donations and 
it makes me feel very happy to be a part of the community at the Uni of York. And um, yeah, I, I like I have a lot of faith in it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for having us. It's been really nice.